Well, I don't know uh, who you're watching this live stream with today, but if I don't miss my guess, it's probably some family members. Maybe you're sitting in your living room around your TV or, or wherever you're at. If there's someone else in the room watching the live stream, let's take a minute and turn to each other and answer this question. What character in the Old Testament experienced the most suffering? I'm going to give you some time to do that. What character in the Old Testament experienced the most suffering? Turn and and answer that question to whoever you're watching the live stream with. Well, I'm hoping that maybe you've had time to answer now. We've got a little bit of delay depending on what device and service you're using, but it probably didn't take you long to make your guess. Interestingly, I did this at home with some of my family last night, and before I could even get the question out, my my family echoed in our living room, Job! And if I don't miss my guess, that's probably what happened uh, with whomever you're viewing this live stream with too. You all probably said Job, And, and that makes sense. I mean, the book of Job is a long book, 42 chapters, and it's all about this character, Job, who lost everything, right? He lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost most of his family, and then on top of that, his family and friends that remained weren't really all that helpful as he mourned and tried to endure through his season of hardship. Job experienced a lot of suffering. But I'd like to suggest to you today that there's a character in the Old Testament who actually endured uh, more difficult suffering than Job. And her name is Naomi. And I think the story of Naomi, as we began to dive into it last week, is significant because we get this sense as we listen to Naomi's story that um, we can learn from her. How do we remain connected to God? How does our faith in God stay strong even when we're faced with overwhelming suffering? I think for many of us, the the truth becomes that when the full force of our suffering hits us, no matter how long we've walked with God, our faith can uh, can really take an awful beating. It can really become quite painful and, and sometimes difficult to hold on to a confident faith in God as our solid rock. But Naomi's story and Job's story, they both tell us that it's possible. It's possible no matter what we endure to not only hold on to God, but to walk out the other side with a strengthened and deepened relationship with our Lord and Savior. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to take a peek into Naomi's suffering as the author of the book of Ruth uh, lets us see it, as he explains it to us. I'd like to start today by, by looking at what were the causes of Naomi's suffering. What was it that caused so much pain in her life? And if you've had a chance to, uh, to look at the sermon notes online, uh, you can follow along, or, or if you're taking notes somewhere else, you can feel free to, uh, to jot these down. But what I'd like to do is start by reading in Ruth chapter 1, right at the beginning of chapter in verse 1, and we're going to see some of the causes of Naomi's suffering. So follow along as I read, or just listen. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. 
I'd like to suggest that the first cause of Naomi's suffering is the day in which she lived. You see, the author, right at the beginning of the story, tells us the time frame in which Naomi lived. He says, in the day that the judges ruled. This is a specific time in Israel's history. It it runs from Joshua's death until the coronation of King Saul. And we can read the book of Judges and we can, we can see the accounts of what happened in those days. There's, there's fascinating stories like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. But as we read the, the, their stories, we understand that those stories are only heroic and fascinating because of the context in which they happen. Actually, and I, don't, I don't know how your Bible is laid out, but perhaps as you read Ruth 1, you can just look on the other side of the page and read the last verse in the book of Judges, which says this, and then it summarizes the, the whole ethos of, of the nation of Israel in, in the day of the judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That was the ethos or the zeitgeist or the, the prevailing attitude in Israel in the time in which Naomi lived. Everybody did as they saw fit. And make no mistake about it, this, I'll do it my way. I'll do what's best for me and mine. That attitude caused suffering and pain for Naomi. And we get a little feel for that as we read on because it wasn't just the day in which she lived that caused Naomi to experience pain and suffering, but it was also the the national national crisis she experienced it. Again, the, the author of Ruth tells us that in the midst of this chaotic period where everybody was doing whatever they wanted, there was a famine in the land. Now, to be clear, this just isn't in, this famine isn't just in Bethlehem where Naomi and her family lived. This famine is throughout the nation of Israel. And you can be sure that Elimelech knew that it was throughout the nation because every night he would sit down with his, uh, with his smartphone and he would check the map to see how bad the famine was. No, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, but the famine was probably throughout the nation of Israel, which is why when Elimelech said, we've got to do something to save our family, he moved out of Israel and went to Moab. Now, historically, the people of Moab or the country of Moab wasn't friendly or hospitable to Jews. It it wasn't a good relationship. It wasn't a good place for God's people to be. As a matter of fact, God's people had specific instructions to keep clear of the land of Moab and to keep clear of, of Moabites. They were not to be in relationship. But when everyone is doing as he sees fit, even godly men can make horrible mistakes. And that's what Elimelech did. He moved his family to Moab. And the biggest problem isn't that Elimelech moved. The biggest problem is that he moved them out of the promised land. You see, and that's that's the third cause of Naomi's suffering is that they moved away from the land of promise. You see, especially at this point in Israel's history, the promised land, the place where they were living, in this case, Bethlehem being part of that was crucial to experiencing God's blessing. 
remaining in the promised land was how the people lived under God's canopy of blessing. And so Elimelech's decision to to move out of the promised land would be like us moving out from under a tent that was keeping us dry in a rainstorm and somehow expecting to stay dry even after we moved out of the tent. That just wasn't how it worked for the Israelites in this season of their history. And as, as the narrator tells us the story in Ruth chapter 1, it doesn't take long to see that Elimelech's decision to move away from the promised land did start to cause pain and suffering. It took its toll on, his, on Naomi and his family. Let's keep reading. I'm going to pick up again in, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This introduces us to the fourth reason or the fourth cause of Naomi's pain and and hardship, and that's widowhood. And And I think this is what makes Naomi's suffering much more intense than Job's. You see, both Naomi and Job lived in a a male-dominated culture where everything revolved around men. And so when Job lost everything, at least he still had his maleness. He was still the, the dominant gender in their culture and in their society, but not so for Naomi. When her connection to a man, her husband, Elimelech, when, when, when she lost that, when he died, she was left with well, let's just say her, her value took a sudden downturn. You know, we can even see this in the word that the Hebrews use for widow. The word that they use, amana, comes from a root word that means to have no voice. You see, in their cultures, widows had no voice. They had no one to defend them, no one to protect for them, no one to, to speak up for them. They had, they had no legal rights, no, no way, no recourse when they experienced injustice. Without a husband in that culture, Naomi was half of a conversation. She was a a dangling participle. She was a yin without the yang. She was defenseless. She was a leftover. But at least she still had her sons, right? Yes, her husband died, but she had sons, so she still had some males to look out for her and, 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 and protect her. But the author kind of gives us a, a nod and a wink. He does this a lot throughout the book of Ruth. He, he kind of gives us a knowing wink when he tells us their names. Their names were Malon and Kilion. You see, Malon means sickly, and Kilion means wasting away. And apparently her sons weren't just physically weak and faltering, but spiritually faltering too. You see, the the narrator tells us that they both married Moabite women. Now you would say, of course they did. What was their other recourse? They were famine refugees. Who else were they going to marry? They were living in the land of Moab. Well, quite simply, they could marry anyone except a Moabitess. You see, Israel's history demonstrated that to get involved with a a Moabitess was a destructive choice. It always caused pain and suffering. But 
Both of Naomi's sons chose to disregard that and marry Moabite women. And then what we see happen really becomes Naomi's fifth source of pain and suffering. In the years after her sons married Moabite women, we begin to hear the, uh, the hammer pound the nails into Naomi's coffin. Because the, the author tells us that now Naomi, although it's not her own barrenness, now Naomi begins to taste the pain of barrenness. You see, in a culture, in their culture, a woman's greatest job, her number one responsibility was to produce male heirs that would carry on the family name. And so Naomi did that with two sons, and then their wives were to produce sons or grandsons for Naomi who would carry on Elimelech's name. That's the way the family stayed healthy. That's the way they passed on their inheritance. And, and yet year after year, Month after month, as many as 240 times, scholars say, Naomi and her daughters-in-law were reminded that they weren't pregnant. They weren't able to do what they needed to do in their culture to maintain themselves and to keep their family line going. And then, the author says, Naomi's sons died. So here we have three widows with no males to look out for them and protect them in a culture where they needed males. And they look around and they realize they're sitting ducks. And they're surrounded by marksmen whose shotguns are loaded with the best small game on the market, the best small game load there is. Now what's interesting is that the, the author of the book of Ruth gives us a glimpse of Naomi's suffering, but he moves on right away to tell us how Naomi responds to that. Let's look at Naomi's, a few key responses that Naomi has to her suffering. Uh, and let's do that by starting to read again at verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab, in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So when Naomi's suffering reaches its peak, her first response was to return. She returned. She went back to the place where she knew how things worked. You know, really, we can't blame Naomi for this decision. Truly, she's doing what we all do when things get difficult. She's going back to the basics, back to her, her comfort zone, her safety zone, back to where things made sense, a, a time and a place, if, if she could go back to a time, definitely a place where things made sense. But let's not romanticize what Naomi's doing here. This isn't like Dorothy clicking her ruby slippers to, to be rescued from the, the danger of the land of Oz and whisked back away to safety in Kansas. Naomi is under no false impression that things are going to be perfect back in Bethlehem. I mean, she gets it. She's a postmenopausal woman who has no grandsons, no males in her life that can step in and intercede for her. 
And even though Elimelech still owns land in Bethlehem, there's no guarantee that she can do anything with it. She may not be able to sell it. She is, after all, a woman in a male-dominated culture. The, the guardian redeemer may not step up and do his part. She's not going back to Judah because this is her easy button. This isn't, this isn't a, a romanticized trip for her. She knows what she's getting into. Let's also not despiritualize what, what Naomi's doing here. There is a sense, I believe, that Naomi understood that to go back to the promised land, to go back to her people, was the place where she was going to receive God's blessing, where she could live fully under the covenant that God had made to bless his people and to provide for them and to keep them safe. She knew that a return to Bethlehem was a return to all of God's promises for her. But not only did she return, I want you to notice what may be the most significant part of Naomi's response to her suffering, and that's that she extended loving kindness. So the narrator, the author, tells us that when she returns to Bethlehem, Ruth and Orpah make the trip with her. In their culture, that's the way it had to work. You see, in the ancient Near East cultures, a woman's responsibility was to provide an heir for the family. And a woman was bound to her husband's family, even when her husband died, was bound to that family unless her biological family could repay the bride's price that her father-in-law had paid her father for her to marry her husband. Now, now this, is, this is interesting as you think about it, because when uh, Malon and Kilion began to look for their wives in the land of Moab, Elimelech was already dead. And so what that means is that with Elimelech not living, probably the boys found women in Moab who were of the lower socioeconomic e economic standing. Their families probably didn't have a lot of resources. So when it came time that, that their fathers, Ruth and Orpah's fathers, could buy back, could pay back the bride's price, they probably didn't have the resources to do that. Their fathers may not have even been living based on clues in the text. And so, of course, they're going to go back with Ruth. Excuse me, with Naomi. Of course, they're going to go back to Judah. They have no other option. But notice what happens on their journey back to Bethlehem. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. As they were traveling on the road to Judah, to, to Bethlehem, verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each one of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that, that, who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I had a husband tonight and he gave birth and then I gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? 
If you watched last week's live stream, you may recall that hesed or, or loving kindness is one of the key themes in the book of Ruth. And this is where we see it for the very first time. You see, Naomi could have demanded that Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, stay with her and make the journey back to Bethlehem and fulfill their responsibilities to her family. She could have demanded that they do this. But instead, Naomi shows them loving kindness and says, go back home. In a time where she would have had all permission in the world to be most concerned about her own needs, she was concerned about the needs of her daughters-in-law. She knew that their best future was back in Moab. And so she sent them back. She sent them back so that they could have a hope and a future. Not only does she release her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, from their legal and their moral and their familial responsibilities to her, but notice when she sends them back, she sends them back with a blessing. She says, may the Lord show you his chesed, his unfaltering, unfailing, faithful, loving kindness. Now, don't just assume that this, this blessing that Naomi uh, sends her daughters-in-law away with is some kind of rote, God bless you, like we might say when someone sneezes. I don't think that's at all what ha what's happening here. I believe when Naomi blessed her daughters-in-law, she believed that God would bless them, that his loving kindness, his chesed, would go back with them. You see, Naomi didn't just believe that God existed, she believed that he's alive and active in the lives of his people. Let me show you why I say that, why I think from the text we can see that, that Naomi believed God was alive and active in the lives of his people. I'm going to start, I'm going to pick up where I left off in verse 13 in the second half, and, uh, and we're going to read some verses here. She says, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And then jump down to verse 19. So the two women went on, that's Ruth and Naomi. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. We, uh, we get this sense that these verses aren't the glowing report. They're, they're not exactly what we would want to point to uh, as an endorsement of who God is. And yet at least as we read them, we understand that Naomi was honest about her theology. Naomi was honest about how she understood God and, and who he was. You see, sometimes we as Christians, we convince ourselves that the more mature we are as believers, the longer I've been following Christ, the more um, resilience or bulletproofness I'll build up to suffering. And so we're just confident when suffering comes that, that we're going to be able to get through it. I'll be resilient. And when reality sets in and we begin to realize we're not really all that resilient, we, uh, we don't know what to do. 
That's where Naomi and Job and their stories come in. Because they teach us that that's not how life works. And that even in the greatest suffering, we can still be honest about who God is and his relationship with us. And, and that will allow us to experience God and his greatness. Let me say it like this. There is no way that we will experience the loving kindness of God in the midst of our suffering if we're not able or not willing to be honest about how our hardship is shaping our attitude towards God. If we can't be honest about our perspective of God in the midst of our greatest pain, how are we going to be able to taste the goodness of God when he lavishes it on us again? And make no mistakes. You may not feel it now. It, he may not seem to you now like this, but God introduces himself time and time again in Scripture as a God of chesed, of loving kindness. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, those who knew God best, this is how they always introduced him. They would say, my God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding or overflowing with chesed, with loving kindness. This is who God is. He's a God of loving kindness. And Naomi apparently realized this. And she wasn't afraid to be honest about the fact that that's not what she was experiencing from God right now. We hear it in the verses we just read. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. Almighty has brought affliction on me. I love that Naomi was honest about her experience, her perspective of God. We see two things here. She believed, first of all, that, that her God was a personal God. Three times as she's telling what God has done to her, she uses his personal name, Yahweh, the, the way that he had revealed himself to his people, that precious name that they could call him. Three times she says, my personal God has done this to me. You perhaps have heard Pastor Greg say um, lately something like, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. You know, that's how we refer to Jesus, especially at Christmas time. But Emmanuel, God with us, is not just an event, it's a promise. Well, Naomi would take that one step further and she would say, uh, Emmanuel is a person. My God is with me. He's a personal God. He knows me and, and I'm in a relationship with him. Although Naomi didn't have the advantage of, of knowing Jesus, she knew the personal God. She had a relationship with him. And three times she describes him as a personal God. Not only did she realize that he was a personal God, that he was Yahweh, but she says, my personal God is the almighty God. She uses twice the, the Hebrew word or words El Shaddai, all-powerful God. Naomi was honest about who she understood God to be. He was a personal God who had all power, and yet for some reason, whether it was through his sovereign will and he had caused her to suffer, or through his permissive will and he had allowed it, she said God's hand has turned against me. The suffering is from him. In the midst of life-altering, gut-wrenching pain, Naomi had the courage to be honest about how she understood and perceived God. 
It's like she said, my almighty God is personally involved with my life and he has caused or he's allowed me to experience this suffering that's going to undo me. It's made me angry. It's hurt me. And I think I'm becoming bitter. Wow. Could I sit in my small group of other believers and could I say to them what Naomi said here, don't call me Naomi, my life's not pleasant. My life is bitter and it's because God has turned his hand against me. Could I be that honest about my perspective of God in the midst of hardship? Could you? Well, I guess that leads us to the last part here today. How should we respond when we face seasons of hardship and suffering and pain and questions? Let me suggest quickly uh, four things we see in, in Ruth chapter one that help us respond well. First of all, return. The first thing we ought to, to consider doing is to return 12 times in the middle of this chapter, 12 times in 10 verses. The writer uses this verb return. He's giving us a clue that when the bottom drops out, when someone pulls the rug out from under us and then tries to smother us with it, we ought to go back to what we know works. This is, this is why it's not unusual when, when marriages hit the rocks that, that one or both spouses will uh, often go to church or return to church because they have a sense that that's a place of stability and, and meaning. And in my past, uh, it did good things in my life. And so I'm going to go back to that. When the bottom drops out and the pain is too much to bear, what would it look like to return to spiritual habits and practices that used to give you life? What would it look like to return to the, the people and place that God has given you to be a source of strength in your life? What would it look like to return to God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole soul and all of your strength? Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting, and we shouldn't understand, that pain or suffering is always because of some kind of sin or backsliding in our life. That's simply not the case. That's like the old Southern proverb. If you lay with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. Because we live in a fallen, messed up world, sometimes we experience pain and suffering. And, and it's not because of anything we've done wrong. It's not because we're living apart from God. And, and so don't hear me saying that if you're experiencing pain, it's because you did something wrong to make God upset with you. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. And, and even if your pain and suffering isn't because you've turned away from God, let's assume that it's not. I think it's still a valid question to say, are there things in my life are there connections to God, spiritual habits, disciplines, relationships that I've grown lazy with, I've grown lax with, and that if I return to those, they'll allow me to experience the peace and strength of God in a way that I'm not right now. But truthfully, sometimes our pain and our suffering is because we've turned from God. It is because we've started to do as we see fit what we think is best. In those times, our best response is to return. Return to God. This verb that the writer of Ruth uses here is the same word that we call repentance. It's turning from walking in our own direction, what we see best, and walking in the direction that God wants us to walk in. And so friend, if you're in a, a season of pain and suffering right now, let me encourage you to return. 
If your pain and suffering isn't because your relationship with God is, is in a season of rebellion or backsliding, if it's not because of that, then, then, then ask, are there some relationships or some disciplines or some habits that would help me to experience the strength and peace of God? But if it is because you're wandering from God, then now is the time to repent and to come back. Secondly, I would say a cue we can take from Naomi is to help people. You've probably heard the old adage, the old adage that says, hurting people hurt people. But you know what? Apparently Naomi wasn't aware that that's how it's supposed to work because as we've seen, when she's at her, her lowest point of greatest pain, she's actually more concerned about the needs of others. And she sends her daughters-in-law back to, to their hometown, to their, their, their father's, their mother's house where they have a hope and a future. Let me encourage you, at your, at your point of greatest pain, let's turn that proverb on its head. Instead of being hurting people who hurt people, let's be hurting people who help people. If we can do that, I guarantee your pain and suffering will take on a different feel. Number three, I want to encourage you to take an accurate inventory. Take an accurate inventory. Throughout Ruth, we find the author giving us a nod and a wink that everything isn't uh, what it seems like. And, and that happens here again at the end of Ruth chapter one. Let me read again to you. I'm starting from verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi, and here's the nod and the wink from the author. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. See, the author doesn't say that Naomi was wrong. She did leave Bethlehem with a full life, and she is returning comparably empty. But what the author tells us is that Naomi's inventory of her life isn't completely accurate. After all, she stands there with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who committed to stay with her. And although Naomi may have an empty heart and an empty soul and an empty stomach, the author says the barley fields are full. And so Naomi's going to be full in a minute too. So when you're in a season of pain and suffering, let me encourage you to take an accurate inventory of where you are. You may not see it now. You may not be able to feel it. But scripture tells us time and time again that God is already working on your behalf. You may feel empty, but be not dismayed. God is working to fill you back up. He's fighting your battle. He's standing up for you. He's working in your life to fill that emptiness that threatens everything about you. And finally, the fourth thing I, I, I want to suggest that we see in this first chapter of Ruth that helps us to know how to deal when the, the rug is pulled out from under us is to commit your life to Jesus. Commit your life to Jesus. The greatest thing that we see happen in Ruth chapter one actually happens, in my opinion, back in verses 16 and 17. Let me read those to you. But Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Don't get confused. This isn't Ruth making a commitment, a vow to her mother-in-law. This is Ruth making what we would call a conversion. She is choosing to become part of the people of God. We would say in our lingo in this day and age, she's choosing to follow Jesus. She's becoming a Christ follower, a Christian. She is entering into the family of God. And so if you're in a season right now of pain and suffering, if this is a season where it seems like all you can feel is pain, where, where the sting of death and loss is sapping your strength, where, where hope is just another four-letter word, where you wish you never would have tasted of the good days that were snatched out of your hands, please hear me. There's healing in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more that God wants right now in your life than to make you his child, than to allow you to taste of his loving kindness and experience his goodness. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means that you confess to God, God, I need you. I have wandered from you. I haven't lived life the way that you want to. You confess that to God and you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only one who can help you walk the right path. And then you, do, you commit your life to following Christ and, and living life God's way. And you become a follower of God. In your greatest pain, if you're not following God, that's your number one option. That's the way to, to move through that season, to experience the love and the kindness that God has for you. Don't delay Now's the time. God is calling you. He's screaming out to you, be my child. Follow Jesus Christ. Allow me to forgive you and lavish you with loving kindness. Beloved, as we look at the life of Naomi, we see that her suffering came through several different avenues. But more importantly, we see how we can respond to our suffering in a way that not just holds on to, but strengthens and solidifies our relationship with God. Even more significantly, if we're not following God, we see in the story of Ruth and Naomi that our best option in the midst of suffering is to turn to Jesus and to taste the loving kindness of God. If you haven't done that, don't delay. Today's your day. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Ruth and Naomi. We thank you for the, the examples of, uh, of how to be honest about who you are in the midst of our suffering. We thank you that in Naomi we see a woman who uh, endured the greatest pain and yet didn't lose her faith in a personal almighty God. Father, we thank you for Ruth's example that would remind us that, uh, that pain is God's megaphone to get our attention and let us know that he wants to lavish on us loving kindness. He wants us to to follow Jesus, to be his son or his daughter. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are enduring incredible hardship right now. Perhaps pain that no one else knows about that in their lives. Father, I pray that your spirit would help them to take an accurate inventory 
to see what you're up to, to trust that you are already filling their emptiness with hope and with life and with your loving kindness. And Father, for anyone who may be watching in this live stream who would say, you know what, there is incredible pain in my life right now, but they're not really following you. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in them, that you'd speak to them through me, through others, and help them to see that you're calling them to yourself, that you want to lavish your loving kindness on them, that that if they will confess that they need you, that they're a sinner, and they need the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers in his death and resurrection, that they can become your children. Father, we love you. We thank you that admits in times of hardship and in times of suffering that we have an all-powerful personal God who stands with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.